Hey guys, Peyton here with a quick note before we get started. If you're like me, the pandemic has not been great for your mental health. Uh, I've been dealing with depression for most of my life, and when I'm in a depressive episode, one of the hardest things, bar none, is eating. Like, getting enough to eat, period, but also mustering up the energy to eat, and plan nutritious meals, and go grocery shopping, and cook, and do all the dishes. I just can't cook when I'm depressed. Have you ever been on that depression meals subreddit where people like post meals they make when they're depressed? Let me look at some recent posts. White bread with butter and everything bagel seasoning, chocolate syrup over white rice, a Pop-Tart I crushed up and ate like cereal. And there are times when you can't even manage that, so you cave and order fast food takeout and it's not good for you and it adds up. It's hard out here, and one thing that has made it so much easier for me is WeCook. WeCook is not a meal kit service. WeCook does the cooking for you. All you do is log in once a week, choose from a menu of delicious, nutritious, genuinely healthy meal options, and WeCook will deliver all your meals to your door in refrigerated, recyclable packaging. I'm looking at this week's menu now, and I'm seeing shrimp pad thai, falafel, vegetarian paella, smoked salmon, a quinoa salad with spicy peanut dressing. It all sounds a lot better than chocolate syrup over white rice, and a lot healthier than fast food. It's also a lot cheaper than fast food. With WeCook, I pay $11.75 per meal. There are options for every budget and every diet, and when you sign up at wecookmeals.ca with the promo code JOESBOYS70, you can get $70 off your first two orders. That's wecookmeals.ca with the code JOESBOYS70. WeCook delivers all throughout Ontario or Quebec, so if you live in Toronto, Montreal, anywhere in either province, head on over to wecookmeals.ca to sign up now. And back to your regularly scheduled Little Women programming. Welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now, and I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. I'm here today with my very special guest, Andy Schwartz. Hi, Andy. Hello. Uh, hello. Hello. Andy is a visiting scholar at the School of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at York University. Her dissertation was an online ethnography of femme internet culture. Her writing has appeared in social media and society psychology and sexuality, First Monday, Feral Feminisms, and a whole bunch of other places. She's also a blog editor for Shameless Magazine here in Toronto. Welcome, Andy. How are you feeling? I'm feeling so good. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. So thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're a friend of the friend of the pod, Morgan, who recommended you. And I have read the chapter that you wrote about Carly Rae Jepsen with her, (laughs) which was a a real highlight as a, I should tell you, a Carly Rae Jepsen fan from the first Canadian Idol audition. Oh, wow. Like we go way back. So very <laughs> I'm not even I'm not even that big of a fan. Yeah, you can miss me with that tug of war stuff, but I'm here for the rest of it. But I know Morgan is right there with you. I'm pretty sure that Morgan was in the audience for the no way. Yeah, yeah. You wow. should ask her about it. Okay, yeah. Morgan ground floor, day one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. exactly. Well, so you're a femme, you're a Scorpio. Now we need to know which March sister are you? And Lori is a March sister for the purposes of this podcast. I definitely strongly identify with Joe. I always have, but I also strongly identify with Beth. So, okay. Okay. So I have both sides in me. Mm -hmm. I actually have the first 
copy of Little Women that I ever read was like an abridged <laughs> illustrated children's version. And so I have taken that book to a tattoo artist and got them to like, I have a big portrait oh of Joe March. Yeah. Tattooed on my thigh, like Joe, like at her desk with like Scrabble the Ratter. Always really identified with Joe her temper, her writing, rough and tumble, all very identifiable. But then Beth, I also am so shy and love staying home. It's the water sign. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So yeah. Who are you? I'm definitely Joe. I have created an entire podcast around Joe. Like you, you know, I grew up reading Little Women, but it wasn't until the Greta Gerwig movie and the adaptation and the way that I really saw Greta make room for Joe's gender stuff. And Mm -hmm. until I kind of dug more into Louisa May Alcott's history and Mm -hmm. her legacy that I kind of came to understood Little Women as really a trans text. And there's a lot of love in my heart for Joe and for Lou Alcott and kind of the primordial understanding of not being able to get over one's disappointment in not being a boy or feeling as though as Lou Alcott said, being more than half persuaded that I am by some freak of nature, a man's soul in a woman's body, which is a very, it's a mood and I'm a trans guy. So I've come at it from that angle in a lot of my research, Joe to Joe communication with us here today. Yeah. Very Joe excited. for Joe. <laughs> Joe for Joe. Yeah. It's the new dating app category. What's your relationship to Little Women? Did you grow up with it? Have you studied it, written about it, anything like that? I was under 10 for sure when I first read it. It's probably in my most read book and I think therefore my favorite I won't say I read it every single year but like most years like as soon as that winter break hits it's little women time Christmas just isn't Christmas without any presents I need it in December (laughs) (laughs) so I love it I have this hardcover children's version that I've the pages are yellowed it's been with me through all three cities four cities I've lived in every apartment all this stuff taking it to the tattoo parlor to get that and I also had another copy that the cover wore off and I had to scotch tape it together because I read it so much that's like the first (laughs) whole story that I got you know because the abridged Mm -hmm. one left out I'm not sure exactly but like you know made it shorter yeah for sure and more age appropriate although Hmm. it's a pretty wholesome story but and then a few years ago my friend bought me like a a really pretty Mm -hmm hardcover copy that has like scissors like different pairs of scissors Ooh. all over the cover and there's like a okay. ribbon a ribbon bookmark that's my current Lovely. copy yes yeah. so <laughs> I am a fan I'm a collector yes. I see a really pretty cover like a new mm-hmm. edition I haven't seen I want yep. it so mm-hmm. I'm a big fan and I actually just saw the Greta Gerwig movie version for the mm-hmm. first time this past winter like I think I really? watched it on Christmas okay. Day. Yeah, because yeah. I don't know how I just kept missing it and missing it. And I really? didn't like the 90s movie at all. Okay, okay. We'll circle back to that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just one of those, like, the book was better people. Sure. And I think because mm-hmm. I'm so attached to this book and how I've imagined the character, someone else doing it, I'm like, ugh, stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but all of that being said, I love the, the 2019 okay. film. And it okay. actually, like, made me see Amy in a bit of a different light. Like, I really yes. love what they did with Amy in, in the yeah. movie. I was saying to Morgan, what Florence Pugh did for Amy in that movie is like when a mom lifts a car off a baby, like, <laughs> just like a feat of like superhuman strength. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. like have so much yeah. more appreciation. I think like, she really gave the character more depth than even we see in the yeah. book. So Big quite time. delighted by it. Today we're here. We're here talking about chapter eight, Joe meets Apollyon, which is one of those references to Pilgrim's Progress, which I have not read. And I 
I assume you haven't read it either. No, it's just not a. <laughs> Did you like grow up evangelical by any chance? Or I was raised Presbyterian, but like okay. I think it kind of fell away yeah. pretty early, maybe sure. around age 10 or 11. My only knowledge of Pilgrim's Progress was an evangelical vacation Bible school I went to as a kid where the camp counselors acted out Pilgrim's Progress. And I remember we just had a ball with that. Oh, yeah. But I have no recollection of it beyond that. So yeah, you know what? Vacation mm-hmm. Bible school was awesome. I used to it go all poppin'. the time. It was so fun. It could be quite popping. I had but a lot that, of good that said, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Would you like to recap for us what happens in Joe Meets Polyon? Okay. So I think of this chapter as a lot of temper happening. So basically, yes. Joe is going out with Meg and Lori. They're going to go see some cultural thing, like maybe they're going to the theater <laughs> or something. And Amy wants to come and Joe is saying, no, you can't come. And Amy's like, but like you promised last time that I could come next time. And it's like totally next time. Please let me come. <laughs> and Joe's like, you know what? You're a brat and like you're bothering me. I think she says something pretty snarky. Yes. So they just leave as they are doing. So I'm pretty sure Amy says, you'll regret this, Joe March. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, so Joe is like not bothered, goes out with her friends, has a nice time, comes home, goes to find her manuscript to continue with her really important work and she cannot find it. Mm -hmm. It turns out Amy in a fit of rage and revenge (laughs) has burnt (laughs) the manuscript. And it's so devastating. Joe has been working on this story for like probably, I don't even know, however long, doesn't matter. (laughs) It's a time of pen and paper, you know, there's no backup. Yes. So Joe is like pretty sure she's like, I'll never forgive you. I think does she shake her? She gives her, she gives Amy a good shake. She shakes Amy so hard that her teeth rattle in her stomach, which is (laughs) yeah, yeah. I remember that detail. I was like, oh man, that's a hard shake. Yeah. (laughs) Stuck with me. (laughs) So, anyways, the whole family is like, yeah, Joe, this is like so terrible. Amy is super bad, but you should probably try to forgive her. And Joe's like, yeah, right. Not gonna do it. (laughs) No, not no chance. So then like we kind of cut to another part where she's going out with Lori again. They're going to go skate on the local river pond situation. And again, Amy's like, I, I want to come and you keep leaving me out. Like you gotta let me come this time. Joe's like, I'm still furious about you because you ruined my life. Joe and Lori start skating and Amy's following them. I'm pretty sure at the encouragement of Meg, who's just like... You should go. She'll forgive you if you go. So Amy's skating, trying to catch up with them. And she doesn't hear that Lori's like, oh, the ice is really soft in the middle. So stay close to the edge. Mm -hmm. And Joe knows. Joe knows that Amy didn't hear her say say that. (laughs) So (laughs) anyways, she keeps skating. So Amy skates into the middle of the river or the pond or whatever, where the ice is really thin and she falls in and they have to rescue her. It's very bad and very scary. So as Amy is recovering, napping in front of the fire. Joe and her mom have this heart to heart about like, oh my God, my temper is out of control. What's wrong with me? I'm so horrible. And then Marmy is like, same. I have the same temper. (laughs) Anyways, and they have this really beautiful conversation about taming your temper and just trying to do a little bit better and very wholesome and sweet. And they make up in the end because Joe realizes, okay, uh, setting my sister up to drown because she ruined my book was like, it was almost fair, but not fair, ultimately. (laughs) (laughs) I am mad at Amy, but not mad enough to kill her. There's a lot. (laughs) I felt bad about that in the end. Yes. I wanted to see how it felt. I'll I'll try it, but ultimately it was like not for me. 
not for me. No, no, no. And Joe's serial killer chapter comes to <laughs> and early close. There's a lot in this chapter about anger, a lot here about women's anger and girls' anger. And I'm very excited to have you, a self-described academic here, to dig into that with us because I feel like a lot was made of, especially the line where Marmy says, I'm angry nearly every day of my life. People didn't realize that Greta took that from the book verbatim. They were surprised by that. So I'm very excited. Let's start at the very beginning here, where Joe and Lori are getting ready to go out to the theater with Meg and John Brooke on kind of a, not oh, quite yeah. a double date situation, but approaching. Yes. Yeah. I'm very invested in the Joe and Lori relationship. And it's difficult because on the one hand, you have the straight people who are like, they're soulmates. And <laughs> And I'm not in that camp at all. I just want to, I want to be very clear. But <laughs> one of the excuses that Joe gives for why Amy can't come along to the theater is you can't sit with us for our seats are reserved and you mustn't sit alone. So Lori will give you his place and that will spoil our pleasure. So it's, it's very like you're, you're horning in on my, my time with my friend. But what do you make of that? What do you make of that? When I was yes. first reading this book, when I was a kid, I was like, for sure, right. Joe and Lori belong together. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. But then now <laughs> yes. I'm like, no, no, that would like now I'm I, I no. see where Joe's coming from. I'm like, no, absolutely not. So it is mm -hmm. a bit of a journey. Maybe if you've only read it one time, you feel that way. I don't know. Joe is really, really protective of Lori, which is so interesting. She's really protective yes. of that friendship. And I think maybe that's what makes it confusing for people. Where they're like, but why didn't you marry him or whatever? Yeah. But it's just that it's not that kind of love, you know? Her and Lori get up to the best stuff. Being with Lori offers her such freedom that she just yes, doesn't yeah. have if she's chaperoning her little sister. I totally get that. Wanting to protect that pleasure. Yes. In the Greta Gerwig movie, Florence Pugh is cast in, and Florence Pugh is an adult woman, and which leads to some very funny scenes. Like she's at school surrounded by nine-year-olds and <laughs> Greta's like, just go with it. <laughs> Make it work. <laughs> Make it work. But then in the 94 version, which you've already said you don't care for, in the first half of the movie, Kirsten Dunst is playing her. And mm -hmm. Kirsten Dunst is, is a child. Winona Ryder is kind of a young, early 20s, but Kirsten Dunst is eight or nine. That creates such an interesting difference in this subsequent burning of the manuscript section, right? Kirsten Dunst is eight years old, lighting the manuscript on fire, it comes off as mischievous kid sister behavior, not really fully understanding the consequences, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then when Florence Pugh does it, it's like horror movie villain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Her face lighting up orange. What do you think of that contrast in those scenes? I think it was really the Greta Gerwig's adaptation of the story into the film that really <laughs> made me see Amy differently. And yeah. I think it makes Amy generally way more femme and way more camp yeah. than she yeah. was in the book or in <laughs> the 90s version. So I think of Jenny Fran Davis is this writer who wrote the essay mm -hmm. High Femme Camp Antics. And it okay. is like so <laughs> that for me, where it's like, if you know, we are envisioning Joe as a butch character, Amy, especially in this particular performance of it is exacting mm -hmm. her revenge in this really particular I'm going to do something so over the top that yes. you will hate yourself almost mm -hmm. as much as you hate me somehow I'll just turn it into like this really confusing emotional thing so I just love that they did this for Amy mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting it makes it so camp almost because it's so sure. inappropriate it's such yes. an inappropriate thing for an adult woman to be doing so when you're looking at it right like, yeah I'm confused but 
yeah it's like you said it's like when it's Kristen Dunst with her like freaking ringlets or whatever you're like yeah yes. kids are very bad but it's like when <laughs> this happening in this version you're like oh <laughs> she's just yeah 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 so it's yeah. not camp but it's approaching this high femme camp antics thing that Jenny sure, Fran sure. Davis, mm-hmm. which she gives so many examples of through different films of just doing the most yes possible yeah, yeah. one of the things she talks about is the Amelia Bedelia bits trick where you just like pretend okay. not to know how to do something so that like you can make <laughs> your butch feel strong it's just like being manipulative basically yeah <laughs> it's a really really good yeah. essay I love that essay when it came out and I love the application of it to Amy in particular. I was able to read May Alcott's diaries. I was doing some archival research last year and May Alcott, she was high femme camp antics every day of her life. I cannot emphasize enough. This is the, the inspiration for the real life Amy, by the way, I should I should add. There's this one glorious stretch in her journals where she's out on a seaside vacation with a bunch of her friends flirting with every single boy. Mm-hmm. There's a boy who sings a song to her around a campfire one night and she likes it so much she makes him sing it to her three more times just like yeah. on a loop like she like it's an ipod right there's a part where she's reflecting on lou just got a book deal that's so exciting she's so talented i wish i had talent for anything but flirting she has this incredible concept of herself as just this bright feminine sparkly force moving through the world and i, I think having read may's journals and having a greater understanding of her and her work she became a very accomplished artist and sculptor in her own right. She was the sculpting teacher of the guy who sculpted the Lincoln Memorial. She made her mark on the world. Oh, wow, <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's kind of hard not to see the character of Amy as kind of a hatchet job on May. <laughs> Siblings, right? <laughs> Siblings, right. Yeah. And I think what's interesting here, Greta really pulls this out, but it's there in the text. Joe and Amy had had many lively skirmishes. We love a skirmish mm-hmm. in the course of their lives for both had quick tempers and were apt to be violent when fairly roused. Amy teased Joe and Joe irritated Amy and semi-occasional explosions occurred of which both were much ashamed afterward. So I think there's this understanding of kind of Joe and Amy as two sides of the same coin, where if Joe's expression is more butch antics, <laughs> then... <laughs> then Amy is definitely high femme camp antics yeah no I think it's really interesting and I think that context of the you know Mm -hmm. May Alcott's diaries is really really interesting too yeah and I honestly see them both doing this thing and it's anger how anger plays out in this Mm -hmm. uh, chapter they both are doing so much it's like unreasonable escalated to match even more unreasonable (laughs) yeah honestly burning that manuscript is devastating I would not have recovered you know and she no no like (laughs) like not right away but then also setting it up so maybe she'll fall in the ice maybe I won't care (laughs) I really hesitate to call (laughs) Joe a femme in any way but you know (laughs) it's approaching that yeah yeah, the two sides of the same coin yeah manipulating each other exact your revenge to get what you want Mm -hmm. and doing all of this I even think, yeah. and I don't want to stray from my chapter, but even the church bazaar, whatever, Amy's table. Yes. You know, like she just, <laughs> her table gets overshadowed. And so she just makes it even more beautiful and steals the show basically. Cause she's like, oh, now yeah, I'm at the yeah. back. The book is very moral and it makes her like a little more demure, but you know, underneath that and the limes, that's also in the movie is so funny where it, <laughs> she's like, he struck me and she's just like really <laughs> hamming it up. Right. Yeah. And like, I agree. Corporal punishment is absolutely, there's no, no place for it, but like just the way that she works a room. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There were very little 
editorial oversight on Little Women that I found. I was able to look at some original manuscript pages. I don't know if this is just the way publishing worked, but it seems like Lou pretty much sent the pages in and they just printed it, maybe proofread a few things. So there wasn't much in the way of editorial oversight. There's a common misconception that in the context of the high femme camp antics that we're talking about. When Amy goes abroad and is touring through Europe, initially mm-hmm. she has way more than just the one suitor. Like she is flirting with everyone and writing home to her mom about how many guys she's flirting with. And all of that (laughs) gets removed. Anne Boyd Rio wrote and annotated this annotated edition of Little Women that I have here. And her read on that situation is that it was sort of a slut chainy move about Amy. Amy wasn't Mm. allowed to have too many boyfriends or be too popular. May Alcott said, I have a talent. I have a God-given talent for flirting. I will flirt with anyone. Yeah. (laughs) I liked when you sang me that song. Could you sing it three more times? (laughs) <laughs> so some of this is getting pressed out of Amy as well. You mentioned the book is is making her more demure. So like, what do you think is the moral lesson for Amy in this chapter? Oh, yeah, it's so complicated, right? Because it's like, she, especially this pressure, I think it's like, it's very real in the time that marrying well is honestly, it's really important for these girls, for these little women. Aunt March really lays down the law for Amy. She's like, it's your job your sister married this poor teacher joe is probably not going to get married and beth's dead okay like you've got to do something or beth's dying so i think that amy takes that to heart and is part of this casting this wide net with her flirting it's yeah she takes it really seriously like she takes it seriously that she wants to have a nice life she's like i gotta provide for my poor righteous little family their strong beliefs she's like i gotta be the one who throw that all away so that we can eat and stuff and again i think it's in the greta gerwig film that comes across really clearly and I think that's part of the high femme camp antics because then you can sort of you see how calculated it is but the moral lesson for Amy she's really ambitious but she also can see herself very clearly she's like I'm just what am I going to do otherwise not a genius so I'll just endow the arts or whatever yeah so I think Amy Mm -hmm. through the course of the book is the spoiled one she's bratty Mm -hmm. and so she kind of I think that's a hard lesson for her it's like she's not going to get everything she wants she is Lori's second choice that's a hard life to live you know (laughs) like and then you know you're not going to be the artist you always wanted to be so it's like she has to eat a lot of humble pie really (laughs) but he does get in that kind of constrained understanding the best life out of any of them Mm -hmm. she marries the richest I want to get into the Amy Laurie relationship, actually. I'm, I'm really glad mm-hmm. you brought that up and kind of this thing of Amy being the second choice, Amy not really realizing her aspirations so much, right? It's more in the book than any of the films because the films understandably focus on the sisters, right? But there's mm-hmm. kind of a whole Laurie soliloquy where he goes and tries to make it as an opera composer and just never really gets <laughs> yeah. off the ground. <laughs> so by the time he comes back into Amy's life, he's sort of a failed composer. She's a failed artist. And that's where they meet one another. So it's this kind of, right. they're meeting each other in kind of this common ground. I said earlier, for the purposes of this podcast, Laurie is a March sister. And I really, I'm very interested in the possibility of trans femme Laurie. I think Laurie is really the only example we have in literature of a male character looking in on a world of women and really really wanting to be a part of that world right Mm. to the point where the marrying Amy is kind of I just really want to be a part of your family and be an honorary March sister (laughs) and Beth is dead (laughs) so can we this is the situation Yeah, it is giving a little end of the night lights going in the bar who's still (laughs) there you know like it's it's a little bit that Do you think they're well suited for one another? And and do you see any kind of seeds of that future relationship in this chapter? 
Mm. Yeah, you know, I guess like when I was reading the book, every single time I was mm-hmm. reading the book, Lori and Amy getting together in the end is every time it's a surprise. It's like, oh yeah, what? Yes. Yeah. But I guess here it's like we could maybe sort of interpret. I would always interpret it Amy's like strong desire to go out with. As she just wanted to be like with Joe, and she just wanted to be with her sisters. Yeah, but maybe yeah. it's also like she is always in like in a hurry to grow up. And I think mm-hmm. maybe you can sort of see the seeds of this like a crush on Lori, just being like super mm-hmm. ready to be like, I want to go out on the town. I want to live that life. So it's like maybe if I'm thinking a little more carefully about it, I can see it. Okay, so maybe yeah. there's some interest in Lori here because her yeah. and Joe hanging are also doesn't make any sense like why would you want to go skiing with joe just push you through the ice you should have seen that coming honestly it can't be the first time yeah i think you raise an interesting point that they're kind of both failed artists and they kind of meet each other where they're at and they can see they can be like really honest with each other i think is the thing that comes out I think there's a mutual understanding of their situation. This is not the faded from day one love match. It's yeah, it grows into that. And I I don't know if you've read any of the sequels, like Little Men or Joe's Boys. I haven't either. I dipped into them, but Lou Alcott was so weird, man. Like the future she she imagines for these characters is just like, okay, so Joe is here and she's running a school and Lori is on the same plot of land running a college and they all live together in this commune and Joe and Lori are still best friends. (laughs) Even though they live there with their respective spouses, they're always together they have fun little nicknames for each other yeah (laughs) I did read little men but I don't remember it that clearly I don't think or maybe it was Joe's boys no I don't think so anyways I did read one of them but I think that's it is like that's the vision and I think they kind of all believed in that vision right like they think that's exactly why (laughs) they just all wanted to be together it's so interesting this is a bit of a tangent it's so different than how we understand community now even though it's like Joe and Amy clearly they Mm -hmm. do not get along and then everyone's heart is broken in some way or another but they're like you know what but this is it like we're the community this is our family we're not rebuilding it we're just going to make it work it's so interesting such um I want to do that now you know what I mean we don't get along I'm not gonna force it but and I think that's sort of the idealism of that story too it's like really beautiful yeah Yeah. I think a lot of what Lou was expressing with the relationship between Joe and Lori was kind of trying to have this relationship a really really close comradeship unbound from gender where there was no romantic or sexual pressure getting into Louisa May Alcott's biography here there was a point when she was a young child and her dad was on this mission to found a vegan commune which is a whole thing and we don't don't have to get into all that but at one point he visited a shaker community which was segregated by gender and came back to his own commune and said that this is great we should segregate by gender and he had a wife and four daughters (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think so it would essentially mean breaking the family up and Lou was devastated mm-hmm. that this was even suggested and it came at the vegan commune was failing her father as it was failing was having this bout of suicidality so this threat of having to live segregated by gender especially with Lou even at that age knowing I don't feel like a girl I feel like a boy mm-hmm. I think that just might have been devastating and I think so much of the Joe and Lori relationship is just trying to get to a place where that kind of community can exist without division along those gendered lines. Going back to the nascent Lori and Amy relationship here, I think it's noteworthy that when Joe is saying, this is why you can't sit with us, Amy, she said, Lori would have to give up his seat. So she's even then setting up, if you do get to go, just know you don't get to sit with Lori. Okay, like, right. I am not going to give up my seat so you can sit with Lori. She's just foregrounding, trying to avoid Amy and Lori even getting close in that way mm-hmm. because Lori holds something so special for Joe. 
Yeah, I think I really agree. And as much as Joe doesn't want to be with Lori in that way, she doesn't want to lose like anything to compromise their closeness, right? So yes. even Amy getting in there is a potential threat because it's the place where Joe is the most free, yes. where she's honestly the most accepted. Because obviously her sisters mm-hmm. and her mom love her, but they're like, oh, you know, you should act like a lady. Not mm-hmm. all of them. Beth loves her. She thinks she's perfect. Yes. Yeah. Beth is perfect. But in those moments, she doesn't want to share Lori. I think no. that's also why as a reader, I mm-hmm. never, never could consider that Lori might be interested in Amy because Joe is so in there ready to yeah, see yeah. everybody separate. Like she wants, it's mm-hmm. odd, right? She wants everyone to be together and never know when to move out and get married and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of tension, mm-hmm. a lot of tension in there. Yeah, and it's noteworthy. This is also in the Gerwig film, at least. This is the same moment where Laurie hints, oh, Meg and John Brooke are getting pretty close. And Joe is really yeah. disturbed by that. She doesn't want that romantic closeness getting in the way either, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, no one can be yeah. straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no yeah, it's kind of like a Peter Pan sort of situation, yeah, too, yeah. right? It's like no one grow up because then like the party's over. We have to yeah. do all of this straight stuff. We have to then go yeah. and get married and ugh, we can't play anymore. You just have to work. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that's very real. Joe doesn't want to be a woman, period. But she especially doesn't want to be a wife in the traditional sense. Oh, yeah. Some of the extreme not wanting Meg to get married, not wanting Amy and Lori to get closest. I don't want that for any of you either. Yeah. Because yeah. once Meg's gone, Joe's next. Yeah. You know, it just leaves yeah. her exposed. It's sort of like, I don't know, mm-hmm. did you watch Bridgerton? No. There's so much to say. So it's a bunch of sisters and mm-hmm. the second oldest, I think her name's like mm-hmm. Eloise or something, but it's a very same, it's the very same thing. Like she okay. doesn't want her older sister to get married because then she's like, I'm freaking next if you go. <laughs> and so I think the internet, we've claimed her as like a queer character, or like a bisexual character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's like a little writer. She's very much a joke. She's a good little yeah. Joe prototype, dribbling her little notes, smoking cigarettes, being so <laughs> edgy and whatever. Yeah. Anyways, but yeah, your older sister is the shield and once that's gone, it's like, let's danger get in. It kind of makes you think, of course, all of these characters are so angry, even Marmy. Marmy's saying I'm angry every day. I wonder, of course, there's tons to be angry about, but I kind of wonder because especially in the movies, they made her much more explicitly feminist than she is in the book. The yeah. Susan Sarandon was more feminist. I thought so. I, yeah, I kind of want to hear yeah. what's pissing Marmy off. <laughs> like, yeah. What's she talking about with Joe? I think you're so right. And going back to like a point you made way at the beginning, you said mm-hmm. your partner's mom had never read Little Women, even though mm-hmm. she's 60 and a school teacher. But that would actually put her in the demographic of people who came of age in the 70s, 80s. And at that time, Little Women, it was having a moment as the women's liberation movement and the early feminist movement took shape. Little Women became a punching bag, something that feminist writers of that time would say, this is anti-feminist. This is an example of a strong young girl having the individuality Mm -hmm. beaten out of her. It really had a moment of it wasn't taught in school so much anymore. It had pariah status. And so Gillian Armstrong came in in 1994 to direct it and really made a point of like, this is a feminist text. It's a feminist text. (laughs) Susan Sarandon like looks directly to the cameras like, I think corsets are bad. (laughs) (laughs) As much as this book has a history, it has a real history of how it's being responded to Mm -hmm. and interpreted in the culture. 
definitely it went through a moment where people were like, this is the antithesis of feminism. Sure, right. Louisa May Alcott, right? Right. <laughs> and like, That's interesting. Back, I didn't yes, know that. Yeah. 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 Greta Gerwig's evolution on that was, Marmee is not so much a feminist paper bag puppet who mm-hmm. dispenses little, little truths. I think she pulls those threads out and talks about women's anger and really allows that to stand. We get to see Joe beating Amy's ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Joe's yeah. Really going for it, right? Also, I don't know if you watched Downton Abbey. No, no. Okay. I love historical okay. fiction. <laughs> yeah, I watch it all. Okay. Yes. But yeah, so the, so it's again, a bunch of sisters, but they're yeah. wealthy. Anyway, so the mom, she has this line where she's like raising three daughters. You think it's going to be like little women, but really they're at each, other, at each other's throats all the time. And I'm like, what? version of little women did you read yeah. they are at each other's throats they're not docile mm-hmm. little girls no. they're so creative they're always building things and running around I grew up in the country and so I watched this movie the Greta Gerwig one for the first time on yeah, Christmas yeah. past Christmas day and I just like mm-hmm. sobbed because yeah. it's very emotional but also just yeah. this reminds me of my childhood all these ridiculous imaginative games because we lived in the country the internet yes. didn't exist yeah, yeah. this is what it was like the fighting and the mm-hmm. making of I have I grew up with yeah. four, like we have four kids in my family. So that interpretation of this, you know, in Downton Abbey, where they're like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you think it's going to be like little women, but it's so much worse. I'm like, <laughs> little women is not like a sweet no. story of perfect children. Not at all. Yeah. Excerpt from Little Women Joe's hot temper mastered her, and she shook Amy till her teeth chattered in her head, <laughs> crying in a passion of grief and anger. Ah, it sounds pretty docile to me. And that's like a Tuesday. And then the moment of moral reconciliation comes as Amy is recovering from a near-death experience. And Joe says, you don't know. You can't guess how bad it is. It seems as if I could do anything when I'm in a passion. I get so savage. I could hurt anyone and enjoy it. I'm afraid I shall do something dreadful someday and spoil my life and make everyone hate me. Oh, mother, help me. Do help me. She's really in it. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the most relatable moments for Joe, for me, and for lots of people, right? And I think, too, it's like, this is where, again, hesitate Mm -hmm. to even say to, you know, call Joe femme in any way. But these kinds of moments, yeah, to Mm -hmm. me, that it feels very my gender, you know what I mean? Where you're just like, I'm supposed to be like being feminine is like this, but it's like, what do you Mm -hmm. do with all of this rage and roughness that's also comes out for me the answer is femme you know like that's yeah that's yeah. the answer so yeah so I appreciate both of the Amy and Joe just grappling with this social role this gender role and how they actually feel yes. and that's I guess yeah. where I see yeah. that them you know yeah. approximating femme for me but for sure. I, yeah but yeah. I definitely mm-hmm. don't think Joe's femme I think Joe is as close an out literary trans character as we're going to get in a mm-hmm. book from the 1860s, right? Yeah. <laughs> but by the same, she does not actually get to be a boy. She doesn't get mm-hmm. to grow up to be a man. Lou Alcott never got that either. Like, so mm-hmm. this is a character who does have to learn to move through the world as a woman, whether she likes it or not. And it's heartbreaking, but this is one of those lessons. And I think I love what you just said about how there's so much space here to explore women's anger. And I think it's worth noting that what we get of Lori in this chapter is Lori being cool as a cucumber, incredibly calm in a crisis, mm-hmm. not flying off the handle or freaking out, but like, yeah, okay, get a rail, go do this, this, and that. And then when they're hauling Amy back home, Marmy says, I think you were so sensible in covering and getting her home quickly. And Joe says, Lori did it all. It's a moment of even a more feminine quality from Lori. There are so many moments in this book where the gender roles really get flipped. And I think mm-hmm. this is for sure one of those moments. 
Yeah. I want to close on just a letter that Bronson Alcott wrote to Louisa on her 10th birthday. This is her dad. He referred to Louisa's anger and ill speakings as the worm that never dies, the gnawing worm in your breast, which chill thing to say to your 10 year old daughter. I think it says a lot about the environment that she was growing up in and everything that she had to damp down. There's a diary entry that I made particular note of from when she was a child and she was writing about learning to tame her temper. When I do this, colon, everyone loves me and I am happy. It was kind of a precondition for being loved and accepted was learning to tame the temper down. Mm -hmm. What do you take from that about how you reckon with your own anger? Good Lord. Yeah. So you know what, if she has notes on how she did it, I'd like, yeah. to, you know, I'd like that FedEx to my house immediately, <laughs> you know, but I think it's still, even though this book is hella old, I still yes. think it's, this is a, still a huge question. I literally talk with my therapist about it constantly. My anger has a name. I have to take her an outing okay. so that she can see the air she needs to mm-hmm. get a little outing because uh, this this impossibility I think it anyways it's just so yeah. interesting this idea that you have to tamp it down you have to yeah. suppress it completely and that's the only way that you're going to be loved and accepted I don't think that that's really different honestly I don't think being angry is very popular it's not how you no. make friends and I think especially for no. women it's still so hard mm-hmm. to be angry and it's super raced and classed. I write a lot about this in my explorations of femme. And this is why Mm -hmm. I really thinking about high femme camp antics as high femme, because I love thinking about femme as an effective category, as well as an aesthetic one. So I write a lot about Mm -hmm. low femme is where I started thinking about this, (laughs) but then feeling low, not being able to, and how that impacts your presentation. Oh Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then also I really love the Jenny Fran Davis essay on high femme mm-hmm. camp antics because it's about high femme, how you look, but also this behavior. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a behavior, right? Or it's yeah. an affect. It's a it's a way of life, honestly. And so I think it is still really, really hard to find spaces where your anger can be accepted as part of you. And so mm-hmm. I, that's why I really appreciate queer genders like femme. Yes. Because it yeah. creates the space where it's like, oh, we're doing high femme camp antics and it's just yes, like, yeah. Uh, it's just part of our culture. <laughs> I think it yeah. is one of the ways in which we can accept maybe get close to embracing these kind of ugly sides of ourselves. For sure. Yeah. I think maybe in the same way that reading is a queer cultural practice because it allows us to kind of vent that ugliness, but in a way where everyone's in on the joke Yeah, and it's all cushioned in love, right? Yeah. And that's the campness of it, right? That's the campness of it. We're like, I'm going to just act so out of line. Yes. Yeah. But with a sense of humor and with this knowledge that I know I'm not supposed to do this as a properly socialized, you know, human (laughs) woman. But yeah, I think that is the camp is the thread that holds it all together. Yes. Yeah. Do you think Little Women is camp? Oh, it's such a hard question because camp is like, what is camp? As soon as I'm, I think I like know it and then it just, I'm like, no, I've lost it all. But no, I think that case, one of those things I think for me, camp is like, I knew it when I see it, but do I think that little women is camp? No. Okay. Okay. I think, honestly, I think that the story is really quite a moral story it's like religious but I think there's a lot of room I think in the Greta Gerwig movie Mm -hmm. the way that she ends it with that kind of like narrative yeah I thought that was so cool anyways I don't think that that's camp exactly but I think that there's I don't think that it's camp do I think Laurie is camp 
and Amy is camp. Oh my okay. gosh, is is it camp? I don't know. What do you think? Is it? Camp? I think specific performances. Mm -hmm. I think whatever the hell Christian Bale was doing in '94 is camp. <laughs> and then I think the campiest Amy performance is actually the 1933 movie oh, with I Catherine Hepburn which I love. It was directed by George Cooker, who was a famously out gay director. It's pre-code, right? Okay, and, yeah. Yeah, and the actress Joan Bennett, who's playing Amy, is an adult woman who is pregnant. <laughs> and like, they just- <laughs> That sounds amazing. All of her costumes have to be adjusted to hide her pregnancy, right? So they're even more poofy and right. fluffy. And the ringlets are on point. Yeah, I think that is a very campy performance. I think- Yeah, that sounds campy yeah. as well. <laughs> combination of Joan Bennett, the actress, and George Cooper, the director, just fully bringing the camp diva out of that performance. So I would, I would really recommend that to you and like any other Amy fan. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine Hepburn was also out here being like, I think I'm a, you know, I live as a man. I'm a man. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a nice, a nice pairing of her to that role. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Andy. Any parting words, last thoughts on this chapter? I love it. <laughs> mm -hmm. My last thought. Yeah. I guess the thing I want mm -hmm. to say with this chapter is yeah, that what I, yeah, what I really appreciate about this chapter in particular is how mm -hmm. it draws out the affective dimensions of femme gender yes. for me reading, yeah. applying a queer reading to the characters. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important for this, this story, but also for our understanding of femme uh, and yes. well, you know, what I call femme theory mm -hmm. more generally. So I think that it's a really, really good illustration, I think, of what do we mean <laughs> when we yeah. say femme is an affective category as well as an aesthetic one. It's like, well, mm -hmm. have you have you read the <laughs> the chapter where Amy burns Joe's manuscript and then Joe <laughs> kind of sets her up to fall in the ice? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That is high femme camp antics. All right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been such a deep conversation. I'm so, so glad you could come by. Thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so um, much for inviting me. This was super this fun. Was so fun. I think yes, we could probably yeah. talk about this for like another hour. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited to hear yeah. uh, all the other episodes and read the, awesome. the other work you're doing on Little Women and thank you, et cetera. Yeah. All right, everybody, that was Andy Schwartz. The best spot to find her online is on Instagram at Akafemic. That's A-C-A-F-E-M-M-E-I-C. -E -E I'm Peyton Thomas. I'm your host, as always. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. You can also find me at a couple of fun upcoming events. I'm going to be at the Orangeville Public Library on May 17th. That's a virtual event. Come wherever you are in the world. You can also come and see me in Austin, Texas from June 1st to 5th. I'm going to be at the David Foster Wallace Conference delivering a workshop on infinite jest and fan fiction. And you can also see me at the Toronto Reference Library on June 20th where I will be interviewing the incredible Casey McQuiston. You can find details about all of those events on PeytonThomas.ca. And just a quick bit of housekeeping, we are moving to a bi-weekly schedule here at Joe's Boys Incorporated. All of these episodes are produced by just me and one other person, and we both have other full-time work, so bi-weekly was a little more doable than weekly. So thanks for listening, tell your friends, leave a rating and a review if you enjoyed it. And I will see you all in a couple of weeks when I'll be going over Chapter 9, Meg Goes to Vanity Fair, with our incredible guest, Jaya Saxena. See you then. Thank you.